This is session 38 of A Better Brand of Happiness, our study of the book of Philippians. And the title I've given to this series, again, is the title, A Better Brand of Happiness. Now, I started this series with two goals in mind, and I want to review those two goals since we're moving on to a new section this morning. The first of my two goals was to teach you the content of the book of Philippians. If you've attended or watched all of these sessions, then hopefully you have a really good grasp on what the book of Philippians teaches, because we've spent a lot of time walking in detail through verse by verse, phrase by phrase, at times word by word through the book of Philippians, and uh, that is in order to accomplish one of the two goals that I've set for this course, this series. My second goal, though, was to also teach you some Bible study skills. I wanted to show you step-by-step how I study the Bible so that you can learn to study the Bible for yourself. And so I'm reviewing this again um, in part because we've had um, new people attending or watching the services uh, really for the past several Sundays, and I wanted to explain to you that my style of teaching in this series differs from the way that I normally preach on Sunday morning. And um, that's with a purpose. I have approached this series differently than my normal Sunday morning teaching ministry because I have some different goals in mind. Not only do I want to teach you Philippians, but I want to show you how um, to understand the Bible for yourself using Philippians sort of as a model. And if you think about my teaching ministry as if it were a cake, usually I mix the ingredients and bake the cake in private. On Sunday, and then on Sunday morning, I bring it out to you, and I cut it up, and I serve it to you, slice by slice. All right, that's how I would describe my typical preaching ministry. The message is a cake that invites you to, in the words of Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. So that's how I would describe my normal Sunday morning teaching ministry. But in this series, I'm showing you some of the ingredients that I use and how I use them. I'm taking you sort of behind the scenes into the kitchen a little bit and introducing to you the parts and how the cake comes together, how it is mixed, so that you kind of see how um, things come together uh, before I put together a message for Sunday morning. And my reason for doing this is to help you learn how to handle Scripture on your own. When you open the Bible, what do you do with it? Do you just open it to a random place and put your finger in a random place and read a random verse and then try to extract meaning for yourself from that verse? Some Christians do that. I have literally met Christians who told me, what I do is I spin the Bible open and I put my my finger down somewhere and then I read that verse. Well, that's not a very wise way to handle the scriptures at all. But I understand if no one's ever taught you what to do when you open the Bible, I understand that you probably may not know what to do. And so one of the reasons why I want to bring you sort of into the kitchen and let you see some of the ingredients and some of the tools and how I mix them together is so that you have a better understanding of what to do when you open the Bible for yourself. I want you to understand how to take the scriptures and take take it apart and look at how it conveys the meaning that God has for us. And so that's what I'm trying to accomplish in my second goal to teach Bible study skills. Now, with all that said, 
I have developed an eight-part method, an eight-step method to studying the Bible. And every time we start a new paragraph together, I try to walk you through this, these eight steps again, just show you what they are, and then I dip into some of the steps periodically through each of these lessons or sessions together. And so let me walk you through what those eight steps are once again. First of all, read the Bible in several translations. Now, I've studied Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, so I have the advantage of being able to look at the original text. And that is an advantage in studying the Bible, but if you look at different translations of the Bible, that will help you get an understanding of what the original text is conveying. And so, um, one, and, I, and by the way, in addition to looking at the original text, I do look at what other translations have done with it because it gives some insight on how um, the passage should be understood or how it has been understood by people who have uh, developed some scholarship. And so one of the things that I would encourage you to do whenever you read the Bible or study the Bible is to compare multiple translations. The second step that I use is to establish the paragraph. The most basic unit of Scripture, in my understanding, is not the verse. God did not inspire those verse numbers. Somebody added those hundreds of years after the Bible was written. No, the basic unit of thought in the Scripture is the paragraph. And each paragraph in a book of the Bible builds together to give us the ongoing and the totality of the message of Scripture that God wants to convey. And so... One of the things I try to do when I study the Bible, that I always do when I study the Bible, is try to say, where does this message begin and where does it end? Where does the topic change from what we were studying to what's being talked about now? And then where does what we're talking about now end and a new paragraph begins? So that's my second step, is to establish the paragraph. Third is to state the big idea, and I'll come back to that one in a moment, but that's my third step, state the big idea. My fourth step is to break down and label the parts. My fifth step is to keep a list of questions. As you're studying the scripture, there will be things that you don't understand just by looking at the text itself. There will be people who are referenced in it. There will be words that seem unfamiliar to you or who's uh, even in the different translations that are unclear. Keep a list of those questions. And then the next step is to find an answer to your questions. Typically, I go to Bible commentaries, and the Bible commentaries, more often than not, answer the questions that I have put down. And so using tools is where we start to find the answer to those questions. And the seventh um, step in my eight-step Bible study method is to revisit and rewrite the big idea. So I write a big idea at the beginning of the process, then I go through the process of breaking it down and looking in depth at the passage, then I come back to my big idea and say, now that I understand the passage in more depth, is my big idea still the best one, or can it be refined? And then finally, apply the text to your own life. God gave us his word to transform us not to just inform us. Now, information is part of the transformation process. But Scripture warns us against taking in Scripture, taking in truth, without applying it to our lives. And so the goal of all Bible study is ultimately transformation. And so before I finish studying a passage of Scripture and move on to the next one, 
I try to think in some detail about how God would want me to change my life or change my actions or change my thinking in response to the paragraph I just studied. And so those are the eight steps in the Bible study method that I have been trying to convey in this series. Not all of these steps can be really demonstrated in a session like this one. If I did, it would go on for hours, and it would get really boring in many multiple spots. And so it's not possible or even helpful or wise for me to actually go through and demonstrate all eight steps. But I do try to demonstrate from time to time one or another of these steps as we've walked through this passage or this uh, book of the Bible together. So I do try to demonstrate to you as many of these steps as possible. In today's session, we're coming to a new paragraph in the book of Philippians. Remember, number two in my method is to establish the paragraph. Well, today we're coming to a new one. As I studied the book, I determined, and I'm not the only one, that Paul is starting a new topic in our passage for this morning. That paragraph begins with Philippians 4.10. And so if you're not there already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Or if you want to use the app, you can just go ahead and tap on the today's notes section of the app, and you can see the passage of Scripture there. But the paragraph for this uh, session, and that will begin over the next several sessions, starts in Philippians 4.10 and extends all the way through Philippians chapter 4, verse 20. This is the last real meaty content in the book of Philippians. And so without going through all the steps for you, let me just tell you that as I went through the steps of establishing the paragraph, my understanding of the paragraph is that it begins at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and ends at Philippians chapter 4, verse 20. And so let's read this paragraph together, and we won't take time to read it in three translations this morning, but uh, let's read it in my base translation, which is the New International Version of the Bible. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, I desire What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. And as we begin this new paragraph of Scripture, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, there are multiple pieces of these eight steps that I could demonstrate for you, but I want to focus today on just two of them. One of them is state the big idea. State the big idea. That's where I want us to start for this morning. I want us to look at the big idea of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Now, the big idea, as I define it, is a one-sentence summary of the paragraph. If Philippians 4, 10 through 20 is an entire paragraph of Scripture, and I believe that it is, then my belief also is, and my um, experience studying the Scripture over many years has demonstrated to me, that that paragraph can be summarized in one sentence. One clear sentence of Scripture, or one clear sentence of description, I should say, can summarize an entire passage of Scripture. And understanding what that entire passage of Scripture is trying to say in one sentence, I find to be very helpful. It helps you to see the entire corn maze, you might say, instead of just the individual stalks of corn. And so the one-sentence summary is what I call the big idea. Now, I go about finding the big idea by reading and rereading the passage of Scripture. I read it multiple times in multiple translations until some of the key themes, some of the repeated ideas start to stand out for me. It's usually in the repetition of ideas. It's often, I should say, in the repetition of ideas that the major point of the passage begins to emerge. And so I read and I reread the scripture passage multiple times as I'm trying to find the big idea. But as I'm reading it, I ask myself two questions. And those two questions are what is the implied question in this passage? I've told you in other sessions in this study that I think every statement actually answers an implied question or sometimes more than one implied question. And so if that's true, and I think it is, and I've tried to demonstrate it in other sessions, then what is the implied question that this paragraph is answering? That's what I try to do when I study the Scripture. I say, what, what is the question in Paul's mind that he's trying to answer in this passage of Scripture? And the second question I ask is, what answer does he give in that passage of Scripture? If the paragraph is trying to answer an implied question, then what is the answer that emerges? Now, as I walked through this process of reading and rereading and rereading Philippians 4, 10 through 20, and asking myself, what is the implied question, and how is that implied question answered? Here are the answers that I came up with that form my big idea. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, I think the implied question is, how did Paul feel about the money the Philippians had sent him? How did Paul feel? about the money that Paul had sent him. 
And I say this, I, I came to this question as the implied question for a couple of reasons. One is that words of feeling, words that describe human emotion recur again and again and again in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Right in the very first verse, verse 10, you can see Paul says, I rejoiced greatly. Rejoice is a word of human emotion. And this is not the only time that that concept emerges in this passage. And so I wrote, why did Paul feel, or how did Paul feel, because of the recurrence of words of human emotion in this paragraph of Scripture. But also, um, another prominent idea is that in this paragraph, Paul repeatedly references a gift from the Philippians. And as you read this paragraph of Scripture, what you find out is that the gift that the Philippians sent him was money, a gift of money. Okay, and so the coupling of the repeated ideas of feeling and the repeated ideas of a financial gift seem to emerge as the prominent ideas in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And so that's why I think the underlying question in this paragraph of Scripture is, how did Paul feel about the money the Philippians had sent him? That's the question. The answer, I think, is a complicated one. Paul had some complicated feelings about the money the Philippians had sent him. And so I answer this question this way. How did Paul feel about the money the Philippians had sent him? He was grateful, but more for what the money meant than for what it provided to him. As we read Philippians 4, 10 through 20 and look at it part by part in the next several sessions together, I think you're going to see that Paul was really encouraged by the money the Philippians sent him, not because of the money itself and what it could do for him, but because of what it said about the Philippians. It was the message that caused them to give that really made an impression on Paul and that really generated some human emotions in him more than it was the buying power that the money itself provided. All right, so I've taken these two elements. How did Paul feel about the money the Philippians sent him? He was grateful for what it meant rather than what it provided to him, and I've reworked that into a statement. So you'll see I've changed the wording a little bit, but the big idea statement is now taking these two answers and putting them together in one sentence. And so my big idea statement then for this passage is this. When Paul received the money the Philippians sent him, he was more grateful for what it meant than what it paid for. When Paul, and, and by the way, Scholars believe that the main purpose for the book of Philippians was actually this paragraph that we're going to study. It was actually a thankful, a letter of thanks in a sense, for their friendship as demonstrated by the money that they sent. And so Paul is in a sense writing a thank you note to the Philippians, but he's thankful for more than just the cash. There's a lot going on spiritually that Paul was thankful for, and that's why he wrote an entire letter, both to address some things in the church, but also to convey his thanks and his feelings about the money. And so when Paul think, thought about this gift of cash, when he received it, he was actually more grateful for what it meant than for what it paid for. And that's really the one-sentence summary that I would label Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, with. That's my big idea statement. Paul 
when Paul received the money the Philippians sent him, he was more grateful for what it meant than for what it paid for. All right, so let's put that there on the screen just to keep it in mind as we go forward here. Now, as we revisit just for a second my eight steps in my Bible study method, we have looked briefly at the number three, state the big idea. For the rest of our time, I want to look at number four, break down and label the parts, but only for one verse, verse 10. So the rest of our session, I'm going to take time to break down Philippians 4.10 for you, grammatically speaking, and talk about the various parts that are indicated in that verse. And so let's go ahead and do that. Let's uh, break down and label the parts of Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, we read these words, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. As we dig into this passage of Scripture, the first thing that is interesting to me in my study of it is actually something that isn't there. And that is the word, but... The Greek word that is normally translated but starts this verse in the original Greek, and yet the New International Version doesn't include it or any word that would correspond to it, nor does, I believe, the ESV. And I think the New Living Translation, the other type of translation I look at, also doesn't refer to it. And so that's interesting to me, that looking at the Greek text, There's a word that begins the passage, and yet it doesn't appear in any of our translations. Why is that? The answer is that the main purpose of this word, but, is to signal the beginning of a new paragraph. It's not to show any distinction between the content that went before, as much as it is to signal that Paul has moved on in his topic. And so these translations actually reflect that, not by translating the word itself, but rather just by giving us an indented new paragraph, or by you know, giving us a space and giving us a heading to indicate that a new paragraph has begun. But the reason I bring this up is when I'm trying to establish the paragraph, that's one of the things I look for. I look for a word of transition that indicates that a new paragraph has begun. And in the original text, there is one. It's the word that's translated but. After the word but that you don't see in your translation, we see the first uh, word, which is I rejoice. Now, that's two words in English, but in the original Greek language, Greek is an inflected language, and so the verb can actually carry the subject, and that is what happens in this verse. Paul begins by stating the main uh, point, the main subject and verb of this verse right off the bat. He says, I rejoice, and he tells us, and he tells the Philippians that there was great joy in his heart for what he is going to describe in the rest of this section. And so this this word, I rejoiced, or this phrase, I rejoiced in English, gives us the subject and main verb of this sentence. Then it's followed by the word greatly. In English, the word greatly is an adverb, and it reflects an adverb in the original Greek language. But it's an adverb that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place this adverb appears in the entire New Testament of the Bible. 
And it indicates something important. It indicates intensity. The intensity of Paul's emotion when he received this gift from the Philippians. That's why Paul pulls this unusual adverb out and puts it into the passage. Because he wants the Philippians to understand how much it meant to him that they sent this financial gift to them. Then he follows it up with the phrase, in the Lord. And if you think about this this word right here and this phrase right here, rejoice in the Lord, we've seen this before in Philippians, haven't we? Throughout Throughout the entire book of Philippians, at several times, Paul has commanded us to rejoice in the Lord, and he's talked about what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Now he says, I rejoiced in the Lord when I received your gift. And the importance of this phrase is it indicates the realm in which he rejoiced. The realm, and now realm is not a word that we use a lot in English. And so what do I mean? What I'm trying to say is Paul is telling us that his rejoicing was a spiritual kind of rejoicing. When he got the money, it gave him the ability to do some things financially that he could not do before he got it. And yet, Paul was not interested in the materialistic result of the money. He's saying the joy that it gave me was not the feeling that I've got money in my pocket, boy, and I can do what I want with it. You know, it's not that feeling that you get when you put on an old pair of jeans and stick your hand in the pocket and there's a 20 in there. And you can say, hey, we can go to Chipotle, you know, for lunch or whatever. That's not what Paul's talking about. He is not saying... I was overjoyed financially or materially for what you gave. No, what he's saying is, it did my spirit some good. It bolstered me as a Christian. It helped me in my walk with God. And so this word, uh, greatly, in the Lord, this phrase tells us that Paul's joy was not a materialistic one. It was actually a spiritual kind of joy. And we'll come back to the reason for that in a moment. And actually more um, in the coming sessions as we look through this paragraph of Scripture. Then we come to the word that. And this word that is a conjunction. Um, It's often translated in the New Testament because, and that's really the function that it performs here. It tells us the cause of Paul's rejoicing in the Lord. It gives us the basis or the reason or the cause for Paul's joy. And then we come to the phrase, at last. And this phrase is an an indication of Paul's need. It's not saying that Paul was sitting around waiting and hoping that somebody would send him some money. It's not saying that at all. It's really indicating that even though the Philippians may not have known it, and even though Paul hadn't told anybody, he was in a state of financial distress. He was in a place where he needed some money. He was in a place where he was trusting God and probably asking God to help provide for him financially. And after God made him wait and wait and wait and wait, as he often does, right, in our lives, to teach us to rely on him, after waiting for a long time, now at last, something has shown up to care for his needs. And so this phrase, at last, indicates how long Paul had gone without contact from the Philippians and without Um, having one of his financial needs met. But then he adds this phrase, that you renewed your concern for me. 
This is the only time, and let's start with the word renewed. This is the only time this word also occurs in the New Testament. And it's a word that's borrowed from gardening of all things. It's a word that means to bloom again. Paul is saying, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that after a long time, your interest in me has bloomed again. Like, um, like plants that, what are they called, perennials that come up every year? I don't know anything about plants, like not a thing, okay? Um, your interest in me has bloomed again. Like, like after this long winter time, the buds of spring have begun again. That's, what, that's the word that Paul uses. He borrows that word from botany, from gardening, and puts it in the New Testament to try to give us a visual of what it felt like for him to suddenly receive this money as a surprise unexpectedly. It felt like the blooming again of the love that the Philippians had for him. One commentator wrote about this word, renewed, like a person rejoicing over the signs of spring after a hard winter. So Paul rejoices to see again the signs of personal concern from Philippi after a long interval silence. So you can see why he was rejoicing, right? The, the long winter is over, and now here are some hopeful buds of spring. Then we come to the phrase, your concern. And this word means, it's one word in the original language, it means to think or to set your thoughts upon. The money that the Philippians sent showed that they were thinking about Paul. And that they actually cared about how he was doing. They weren't so preoccupied with their own lives and their own struggles, which we all have, that they just forgot about Paul's existence. No, Paul says, the financial gift you sent shows me that you've been thinking about me and that you care about my situation. And that's one reason why it caused him to rejoice in the Lord. Then the phrase, for me, of course, shows the object of their concern. It was Paul himself. Then we come finally to the last sort of sentence as it's, as it's uh, spelled out here in the, in the uh, NIV Bible. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. And it's uh, not entirely clear what Paul is getting at when he says this. He could be talking about the poverty of the Philippians. He might be saying, you had this concern all along, but you were broke, and so you couldn't do anything about it. And you and I both know what this is like. You know that there are times you would like to do something for someone, and if you don't have the money, you can't do it, right? And so that might be what Paul is saying for them. He might, saying, he might be saying, you haven't sent me money for years because you just didn't have it, but now you do. That's possible, but I don't think that's probably the meaning here. It probably means that Paul had actually discouraged all the churches from sending him money. And we could see this in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, maybe, but it seems like maybe Paul had told the churches, don't send me money because I don't want people to think I'm preaching the gospel to try to make money. And so maybe Paul has discouraged them from sending him any money and yet they just did it anyway. And so this phrase, indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it, might be an indication that the Philippians actually broke Paul's um, instructions not to send him money because their, their concern for him was so overriding, it was so important to them, that they were willing to disobey his instructions to get it to him. And so I think the, the, but the, I think the main reason for this phrase, indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it, I think the, the main thrust of this phrase is so that the Philippians don't feel like Paul is scolding them. Remember this word, 
at last. That sounds like Paul is saying, finally, you sent the money. Right? Like someone who owes you money and they keep telling you, I'll get it to you next month, maybe next week, maybe tomorrow, and they never send it to you. And then finally, when you've given up thinking you're ever going to get it, they finally show up with the money. This phrase at last could suggest that, but I think, and the scholars seem to think that Paul added this phrase, indeed you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it, to indicate that Paul's not trying to scold the Philippians. He understands their situation, that either they were poor or they were just following his instructions. But he wants to, to tell them, despite this, despite all of this, how much their gift meant to him. And so as we break down verse 10 together, that's really what this verse indicates to us. It starts to convey to us not only how much their gift meant to Paul, but also what he discerned about them based on the fact that they sent this gift to him. So that's our discussion of the parts of this verse. And I want to uh, take some time to reflect on what it means for us as Christians. Now, at the beginning of our study of the book of Philippians, I gave you some context that becomes really important for this verse and for the rest of this paragraph. And that context tells us that Paul was actually in prison. He wrote these words when he was in custody by the Roman government. He was in Rome awaiting trial. And this stint in the custody of Rome had been going on for a long time. He had been over two years in one place and then been transferred to Rome, and now he spent two years at least there in Rome waiting for his trial. And so for four years or more, Paul has basically been restricted from communicating the gospel message. He's been a prisoner. Now this stint in prison that Paul... Uh, references earlier in the book of Philippians and that caused him to have the need that the Philippians sent money to. This stint in prison was written about at the very end of the book of Acts. In fact, the book ends, the book of Acts ends by telling us that Paul was in custody but not in prison, that, that in fact the Roman government had granted him the ability to be under sort of house arrest. The book of Acts tells us that Paul was living in his own hired house. And so he wasn't allowed to leave like people living in a COVID lockdown, Paul was restricted to staying home. That was better than being in the Roman prison, but it was still very confining. And because Paul had to rent the house himself, that meant he had ongoing expenses. He had to pay the rent. And he had to pay for his own physical needs, his food and so forth. So Paul is waiting trial, but he's under house arrest and he has expenses. He has rent to pay for himself and for his companions, probably. And so when the money came from the Philippians, it was greatly helpful to him. It actually met a severe need that he had in his own life. But more important to him than the need the Philippians met when they sent the money was the heart behind their giving. Paul realizes that they sent this money because they loved him and because they loved the gospel message that he taught them, that he brought to them, that he instilled in them. They cared enough to reach into their pockets and give what they could, even though Paul couldn't go around doing ministry the way he had before. Their love for him and for the gospel was so much 
that they couldn't help themselves but gather a collection to send to help to meet his needs. Now, I can relate to this somewhat at this moment in my life. Fortunately, I've never been in prison and I'm not under house arrest, but my ministry here at Calvary is funded by your giving, the faithful tithes and offerings of the members of our church. It pays my salary, and not just my salary, but also the salary of other staff members here at Calvary. But it also enables me to buy the tools that I need to do ministry, to study the scriptures, and to write and publish devotionals, and to write messages like this, and to put slides together, and so on. Your faithfulness to give to our church is what enables me to do ministry. And it means a lot to me. Not because I have materialistic desires, but because it shows that you think our church is important. And as we've gone through this COVID-19 crisis together, if it is a crisis, the situation When it began, I had no idea how this would affect our church financially. I didn't know which of you or how many of you would get laid off of work and your income stream would cease until you got unemployment or lived off your own savings. I didn't know if some of you would lose your jobs completely because the company you work for just went out of business. And yet, even though we had to radically pare down our ministries as a church, just going only online for a time, and now, basically, we've restricted it to in-person Sunday morning meetings and everything else, either it doesn't happen or it happens online only. We pared down our ministry. We're doing a lot less ministry than we did before. Yet, despite all of that, you as a church have been faithful in giving to our ministry collectively here at Calvary. Not only does that allow us to keep paying for this building and to keep paying our staff, it allows us to fund the missionaries that we've taken on for financial support and the church planters that we've committed to funding. Your faithfulness in ministry means a lot. It means a lot to me and it means a lot to the people who depend on the ministries of this church. But it means a lot more than just the raw buying power of the money that you give. Because when you give, it means you care. You could have taken the tithes and offerings that you had been giving to the church and just put them in a savings account, wondering when you might need them or when you might lose your job. But so many of you have not only faithfully given, some of you have given more than before. Some of you have stepped up to faithfulness when you were, your giving was maybe a little more random in the past. It means a lot because it tells us that this church and its ministries matter to you. And so I want to take some time to thank you for your faithfulness in giving to the ministries of this church. It causes my heart to rejoice in the Lord because ultimately it's God's provision flowing through us that enables us to have what we need as a church financially speaking. But I want to say something even more about this. Because sometimes giving money is actually the easy thing to do. When kids come to my, well, when they used to come to my house, going door to door before COVID happened, 
kids in the neighborhood would come periodically to my house and they would be selling candy bars or candles or just looking for donations for marching band or for football or whatever. It was very easy for me to either buy what they were selling or just make a donation. That's kind of my preference usually because I don't need any more candy bars at this point in my life. And so I might just make a donation to whatever it is they're raising money for. But I don't care. I don't care about their football team. I don't really, you know, not to say that I, you know, I'm not disparaging it. It's just I'll never track that kid down again and say, hey, how's the marching band going? Okay. Um, It's just easy for me to give them money and to, to forget about them, right? Sometimes giving money is the easy thing to do. Actually showing that you care about the thing that you're giving money to can sometimes be harder than just making a donation. And so I want to apply this to us in terms of the missionaries that we support as a church. Your giving, our giving collectively means a lot to the missionaries and church planners that we support. But it would also mean a lot to them if you and I reached out to them and not only just kept donating the money that we've donated and committed, but actually showed some concern about them. Some of our missionaries haven't been able to do ministry at all because their ministry requires them to travel to other places. And so being unable to travel during this time of covidity means really, in essence, the only ministry they can do is just to prepare for the next time they're able to travel. They actually can't do ministry. And so somebody could stand back and say, well, you're not going anywhere. You've pared back the ministry that you're doing. Why should I keep giving to you? The answer is because we care about the person, and we care about that person's ability to keep serving the Lord when the time comes. Paul was in prison for years. He wasn't able to do ministry, and yet the Philippians sent him money money because they cared about him, and they knew he was suffering for the gospel. And so it is with us. It's good for us to provide financially for our missionaries, but it would be better for us to reach out to them and just see how they're doing. Just encourage them. Ask them what we can pray for. And so this week, would you think about someone who's serving the Lord in connection with our church? Maybe it's someone who's leading one of the ministries of our church. Or maybe it's someone that's one of the missionaries that we support. And if you go to our website, there's actually a spot under ministries that'll tell you most of the missionaries that we support, all of the ones that aren't in a restricted place. Would you consider reaching out to them, just sending them an email this week or arranging maybe a Skype or a Zoom call just to touch base with them? That intent, that that establishment of contact with them would mean a lot. It would show that you care about them in a way that even transcends the financial gifts that you give. And so I want to encourage you to think about a way that you could Show your concern. The Philippians, Paul says, you, you renewed your concern for me. It was like a bloom that came back. And you and I could renew our concern for someone in our church who's doing ministry or someone outside our church that our church supports. Who could you reach out to this week and encourage to show your concern for their ministry? When Paul received the money the Philippians sent him, He was more grateful for what it meant, that is, the heart that caused the Philippians to give, than for what the money paid for. And this is a better brand of happiness. 
Because Paul's joy was not about the materialistic benefit. It was about the spiritual fruit that was demonstrated by their giving. And if I were to put a big idea over this session, this this little one verse that we've looked at together, I would do it this way. I would say a better brand of happiness comes from caring for God's servants in meaningful ways. Those can be financial and those can be personal. A better brand of happiness comes from caring for God's servants in meaningful ways. This is a better brand of happiness than the materialistic happiness that the world tells us we need.